Any person could put the spirit, the sweet, uh, as it were, and the bitter together to make a balanced cocktail. So they say, what's more intriguing is to create a drink that tells a story, that resonates somehow with, with what you've learnt about a person or about some mythology or about a feeling. That's much harder to achieve, so it's a real challenge. Welcome to the Lush Life Podcast. I'm your drinking companion, Susan Schwartz, and I bring you the how-to guide for living life one cocktail at a time. Thanks to my mother's love of martinis, the first words I spoke were shaken, not stirred, and I've been obsessed by cocktails ever since. Together, we'll learn from bartenders, brand ambassadors, distillers, and others why certain drinks are popular in certain cultures, how to make the perfect old-fashioned, when to shake and when to stir, and so much more. Hear that sound? It's time to cozy up to the bar and let the fun begin. It all sounds so romantic. Stories of food, drink, love, and intrigue. I was transported back to the days of old as soon as I entered Courtesan and Brixton. Our guest today, Hamant Patel Villa, tells a good yarn. He also makes a mean cocktail. Where do his ideas come from? You have to listen to find out. Quite simply and naturally, it comes from the history of dim sum. So dim sum originated in the royal courts of China 1,500 years ago. And when investigating its origin uh, within the courts, what came out was the history of the courts themselves and that they were basically run and oiled socially by courtesans. So the original terminology for a courtesan simply means lady of the court, as a courtier, as a man of the court. It's, it's then taken on lots of meanings in our modern world, but um, when looking at the original histories, especially of China, you just realised that um, these women were incredibly important, ran the way the courts operated in a very hospitable, intelligent, clever, but slightly, how can I say, I didn't want to say Machiavellian, but in a way that they were looking out for their own interests. So you can imagine um, a courtesan would have been someone trained for that position from birth. So she would have had to know all the languages of the empire, have uh, often a really well-grounded education in the arts, uh, things like poetry, calligraphy, dancing. These are the things we think of uh, royal China, but sometimes other, other facets uh, required within the empire because uh, these women often represented great powers, so maybe noble families, maybe whole regions, and they had access to the emperor and made things happen. So the, the whole culture of food and drink and hosting and uh, being the utmost host as well. These, these women had fineries the world has unfortunately lost um, and taken to a level we'll never see again. And so it became, the, the, the courtesan itself became not just a, a place where you eat and drink, became a place of adventure where you could touch the beauty and fragility of these women 
and enjoy that form of hospitality and also have an adventure in the food and drinks, just as any empire would have had, but especially the, the Chinese empire. And one of those treats was dim sum? Well, yes, d- dim sum means to touch the heart. It's not a food. It's an attitude. So if you're a chef cooking for the em- emperor and empress, the living gods, and you had 400 chefs with you cooking for the court, uh, your task was to be, be ingenious, to come up with new foods all the time. So true dim sum is the, f- the incredible food you've never had. So as soon as you get a menu which you have every week, end on end, then it's not dim sum anymore. So most dim sum restaurants should just remove that from their title. So it was the surprise inside... Absolutely, the adventure. So for instance, many people think steamed dumplings are dim sum. It's not. I've just told you it's an attitude. So the Chinese at the time um, created many of the cooking techniques we know now. So uh, some of the techniques, obviously steaming is the obvious one, but even deep frying baking techniques, how to gain texture within certain foods, um, have affected Europe. So I will state this, all northern Italian cooking is a direct descendant of dim sum. So pasta itself, tortellini, tortelloni, cannelloni, lasagna, are essentially Italian reworkings of dim sum. So that great trading tradition of northern Italy, where they'd go and take these incredible foods from the East, especially China, along with the silks and mm-hmm. other goodies like porcelain, bring them back to North Italy, trade with the rest of Europe, and then the Italians reworked these amazing dishes their own way, right. utilising local ingredients. So in Brixton, for instance, our dim sum should reflect what we have in our modern world, some modern ingredients, maybe re- we have reworkings of Italian Gujarati dishes, uh, West Indian dishes that start putting back that um, methodology, that idea that dim sum should be creative, ingenious, touch your heart, you know, get you engaged and, and make you feel like you're having an adventure through the meal as opposed to just filling yourself and being content with that. Now, were you the one who came up with this concept? Yeah, um, it's difficult to say yes <laughs> uh, because uh, it's almost, as I said, it's quite natural. So when, when going through this whole process, it's, it's not as if I suddenly came up with an idea and said, oh, I, I must do this. All I did was contextualise the history and say, well, we must do this because it's there. It's part of the history. So, for instance, Fern, our, our female head chef, um, when I asked her about, well, why, why are there so few women in dim sum? She said, well, there was always women in dim sum. It's just in modern times, when cooking got really big for thousands of people... They felt it was almost agricultural, that you had to be a big, strong, tough, hairy man to be able to mix, you know, do these foods at speed, etc. So, but dim sum uh, was, was prepared by women. And it's not a southern Chinese thing. It is to do with the empire of China. We know it in the UK through the little colonial outpost known as Hong Kong. Um, so we were able to tr- trial it from there. But honestly, the Hong Kong menu is a very poor reflection of the original dim sum. Um, and equally, Hong Kong um, has set rules that, that are just ridiculous, like dim sum has to be on Sundays in the morning. It's, it's total rubbish. Uh, dim sum is a food to touch the heart. You can have it with tea if you want. You can have it with wine if you, if you want. Uh, there are court documents that show that 
the Chinese would trade with Persia, this is a thousand years ago, to get their wines, because they were the finest wines on earth, uh, to be taken to the royal courts to eat with dim sum. So, you know, there's an immense history to what all the empires, I suppose, have handed down to us. So here we have the Roman Empire, and the, and which we're direct descendants of. But the trade with the UK, for instance, in the 1800s with China has given us things that we think are English, like bone china. The English couldn't make bone china. You know, they stole the idea from the Chinese who've been doing it for years. Or the silks that we see mm-hmm. in Italy and it came from China, obviously. Mm-hmm. And they robbed the little worms to take back to Italy to put in the trees to make silk ties and things like that. But the, the importance of China in our cultural identity, in North Italy, I've just, just said, it is nice. North Italy, um, but even in the UK with design and so-called English China, all coming from China, <laughs> hence the name. Uh, so there's a lot of, uh, uh, I think part of you know, the story of, of me choosing this is not, I wish I could say it was uh, I'm the genius behind, but it's not. History already tells us the importance of these people, and I, I simply had to had to do it. Well, once you had the idea of food from the heart, did it just bleed right into the cocktails and the wine, and you know that idea, and that's um, why you decided on an all female wine list, list and, and spirits listing. Uh, no. <laughs> no, that, that goes... I always love a surprise too. Yes. Uh, no, because that... All right, so we've now established the, the importance of, of the role of women within the courts. Mm-hmm. What then happens is that there are the four great beauties of China who uh, dominate the, his, the, the kind of cultural history of China. So, for instance, in England, we have men in tights throwing bows and arrows at each other, and then we go, oh, King Arthur and, and Robin Hood and all this kind of... And that forms part of the British cultural identity. In China, they've got these four great beauties of China. And it's that, uh, I suppose, um, glorified view or d- dreamscape that we create a, 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 as our background to our lives. So... Uh, different cultures of different things or dragons or whatever but the, the Chinese do have these four women that are very very important and so when you have these definitions given uh, then the courtesan became all about female talent and the courtesans themselves so if we're now establishing a business based on female talent and we want you to see the fineries of China to avoid the female angle is the, would be ridiculous so let's just look at it honestly and say, well, if we're now doing dim sum, that's very female orientated. The concepts are very adventurously uh, female. Surely the wines and spirits should should follow suit. Um, And then what's come from that has has also, you know, helped redefine us as well. So in starting that journey, uh, as with any journey, you then find new things, new opportunities, new visions, new panoramas. And it just proved... Uh, in effect, a rolling ball that proved the direction was uh, not just right, but natural. It, it is what it should be. It's such a male-dominated industry, yes. drinks, yes. on the whole. Um, were you ever frustrated? Incredibly. <laughs> Incredibly. <laughs> you know. And uh, unfortunately, um, I, I could uh, really go on about this. However, let's make this really simple. Okay, in as best as I can. It is a crying shame, the lack of women in our industry 
is something that we should all cry into our tea about. It is absolutely revolting that out of all the industries I know, and this includes IT, IT has a, a percentage of about 18 to 20% female in the industry, in IT. Um, and now they're more coming in, but they're still not taking core roles. It's more of HR and things like that. Fine. Okay. When it comes to our industry, behind the bar, all we see is bearded beta males, you know, pretending that they understand drinks, pretending that they know their product, pretending that they know what they're doing. Uh, in effect, they're there for a lifestyle and not for the core values of a good bartender, which is all to do with the theatre, the beauty of the drink, giving someone a fascinating experience that they can take home with them. And they can't even do it at home. And I, I think the, the fact that women are not in the industry means that that's the case, that we have, you know, I, I think, um, uh, quite a poor representation of what we can achieve. And I'll prove this scientifically as well. Okay? So this is not just me spouting because now we're some kind of female-led feminist view of the world, all right? Let's, 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 let's look at it in another way. Um, have you heard of super tasting? So super tasting uh, is the ability that some people have where they're naturally able to taste things that seem to be so minute, oh, yeah. a bit like sharks, mm -hmm. you know, blood in the water. So I have a friend, um, she was able to tell every brand of tea, just just pick up a, you make her 20 teas, she'd pick them up, you know, blind taste and, and tell you exactly where they're from. You know, even Tetley's versus PG Tips versus all the supermarket brands, just go through them all, just knows them as if it were colours. Uh, I, I can't do that. You know, no, most people can't, do, can't do that. So apparently, scientists reckon, there's, there's different viewpoints. Some simply say, oh, women have more taste buds. It's not true. Um, some scientists say, or some uh, research has shown that 10% of men are super tasters and 30% of super tasters are women. 30%. Why would that be? So there's uh, three potential reasons that resonate the most. The first is evolutionary. So women have children. And therefore, the woman is the barrier between the child and the world. So she's the one that tastes things for the child. So if she's going to sniff a mushroom or a bad piece of meat or some fruit that's gone off, she's the barrier to say, nope, that will affect my child, it will be sick, it's not going to have it. So that's an evolutionary process. So that's evolution saying, um, if women don't do this, the human species dies out. Okay? Mm -hmm. So that's evolutionary. The second is adaptive. So the adaptive process is that women, in having that first role, are around food much more than men. Okay? So that means that they cook, they're actually palpably um, holding the food, cooking with it, um, understanding it, seeing the textures, all these types of things. They're just around it all the time. The adaptive process is much shorter than the evolutionary one, according to uh, our, our, our miserable understanding of the world as it, as it exists. So even within a generation, a person can adapt to the environment. The easiest thing is just, just go somewhere sunny, your skin will get darker. That's an adaptive process. It is built in, but that's adaption. It's something already built in. And over generations, uh, you will gain physical attributes that mould to the environment. So if you, generation, if you move to Alaska in, in 30 generations, you will, you, you, your actual skin and, and your eyes and your nostrils will change to that environment. That's adaptive. Uh, 
So women are adapted to taste foods more. Okay. The last one is that God simply made women that way. Yes, so women have this. Now, let me go back to that 30-10, okay? Yeah. If 30% of women are super tasters and 10% of men, that means 75% of all winemakers, spirit makers, food tasters should be women. It's obvious. And bartenders. And chefs. But our industry, chefs and bartenders, are dominated by men who are not super tasters. They don't even taste what they're doing. But I'm going to go back to that because I, I have a beef with the science behind this because I've given exceptional views on why women have more ability than men. It doesn't make sense. Surely it should be 100%, isn't it? So why isn't it 100%? Uh, the main reason I can see is to do with framework. And it's that if you're a super taster, for instance, how would you know? I guess you'd have to test it out somehow. Exactly. Right. And, and what's the reference for that? Working in the industry or just being around food. Well, no, because you've still got no reference. Even if you can super taste, you still need a reference. So, for instance, have you tried all the spices? Do you understand the difference in mm. cooking times and how it affects the aromas and the flavors? Have you seen all the um, models and mapping of, of taste alignments? You know, do you understand the difference between... Uh, cereal aromas and that that's a study that has to be studied first so you need the framework to then be able to talk right. about so it's it. not just you have two different teas and say and no. realize one day oh i can tell tetley from yeah. pg tips you need to know you that need to a, know that so you have to focus on the food or the drink mm -hmm. actually so i'm um, probably with someone who's training you and to say can can you taste that mm -hmm. can you taste that slight elderflower uh, taste and you're like well i've never tried the elderflower okay Here's elderflower. Right. Taste that. Put it in your memory. You know, get the reference point. That is now elderflower. Anytime you try uh, elderflower in future, you have that reference point, you can do it. Now, there are a plethora of tastes and spices and fruits, etc., that you can go through to analyze, to create a library that allows you to be a super taster. Yes? So you could be, and probably are, a super taster. Oh, I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> I, unfortunately, you know, I, I know I I'll have... I'll have to try it with bourbons, you yeah, know. Well, Set them all up and see if I can close my eyes and taste the difference between each one. That, I'm not sure you'll arrive at super tasting at the end of that. <laughs> it's just honing, the little bit of honing and honing and honing. Now, yeah. I, I have a question. Go on. When you were studying industrial design, yes. right? Yes. Had you any idea that you would know all of this? Uh, was it something that interested you? Um... Yes. Okay. All right. Let's let's go back again. I've been very very lucky in my life to have been brought up in Brixton with an Italian mother and an Indian father in Brixton. That means all my aunties and uncles were from everywhere in the world, especially the Caribbean, uh, West Africa, South America. My aunts, my actual aunt is South America, but my aunties, let's say, growing up in in the UK, were from everywhere. The States, really English chefs. You know, you name it. A lot of dancers, actually, and, and people who are quite amazing. So, um, as a family, we grew up with the world. We, we tried everything. Um, my mum is an exceptional chef and cook. So, therefore, you know, you grow up in an environment that is very creative, that has, the, that has every culture um, to, to try and taste and become part of. It's not as if we're, you know, uh, these, these strange outsiders that go and eat at 
uh, a West Indian restaurant and then claim we understand West Indian cooking. No, we grew up with people who are West Indian that we thought of as family, eating West Indian food, understanding West Indian food. Therefore, I feel part, you know, growing up in Brixton, that, that culture is also my culture. People might argue with that, but that's the way it is. And same with my Italian um, family or my Gujarati family or my African my My, my um, father was born in Africa. He's never been to India. So he considers himself an African. And so when I eat African food with my African friends, and ha- my best friend was, was from Nigeria, and I, I used to call his mother mummy because that's why, what Nigerians do. <laughs> so to have all of that means that you have an experience of food and culture that is Absolutely. vast. Mm-hmm. So coming into industrial design was more to, more to do with, I have now all this, let's call it a library of experience, and I wanted to innovate with it. So my core calling is not industrial design, it's not product design. I find it easy to come up with new ideas for products and um, foods and drinks because I have a background of lots of crazy people and lots of diverse people feeding me, in effect, lots of information about things that I now know uh, that other people don't have. So for us it's natural, and now I'm very appreciative, but at the time it's kind of, yeah, this is life. So you always knew going into your degree that you wanted to come back to food and drink? No, I think I, I love food and drink. Uh, we are known I say we because me and my brother uh, a little bit of it we are known to be able to eat properly and really enjoy our food so we'd be invited by our aunties to eat and they'd watch us eat because we would love food so much and so it's not the fact that I knew I'd come back to it it's more that I know I love it and um, so for instance I, I find making drinks I, I really enjoy it uh, I, I for some reason, I find it very easy uh, to, to put things together when it comes to drinks. In food, food is the worst thing you could ever get me do. I'm the worst chef you can imagine. I get it's angry. It's a good thing we're talking about drinks today. I, you know, and, and the whole reason is I get so frustrated because I can't achieve what I want to. I can't get the flavors. I'm not skilled enough for the cooking times. And, the, the, and, and then there's like our kitchen here or my mother or some of my family who, who just... They, they seem to be able to have, I don't know, the divine touch. They touch anything and it's amazing. Me, it's, it's a, a journey into hell. I descend into hell when I cook because I cannot do what I, my, you know, my taste buds want or I want to achieve or the colours, the textures. I, I just can't. Whereas then drinks, what, I can. Then what brought you back round to it after you finished your degree? I, I think it was, well, there's a long story in between. I've, I've ended up doing quite a few things, so design and I, I was one of the first people to come up with the idea of social media because of uh, innovation and I chased money for 10 years and went around the world begging uh, it didn't work out the way I wanted it to and then see basically spotty American teenagers get a load of money for, for very poor uh, products like Facebook, like Twitter if I can get that out, just rubbish and here in London we came up with many me- things that are still outclass them by a huge amount but the problem with um, Britain is that it doesn't have the same view of encouraging small businesses and the same uh, av- availability for cash unless you're mm-hmm. un- unless you're part of the mm-hmm. the aristocracy. You just don't. You just. You know, it's much harder for us in Europe. But it's it's been a great journey. We did lots of work around Europe and 
consulted for some governments and things like that on communications. So I've had an interesting experience travelling around, etc. And uh, one day, because you're always on the cusp of being a billionaire, I have to say that when you're, in, uh, when you're dealing with this kind of IT environment and you can see uh, what you can achieve and etc. And, and just one day I just realised I had no life because I was just flying everywhere. So between Italy, Spain and New York and London, I was just going back and forth, back and forth. And I had no life. It was the worst life you could imagine. You know, no friends, <laughs> living in hotels, meeting people you didn't like. You know, very wealthy people who I didn't like. <laughs> Politicians and, and, and such. And then um, uh, I just remember flying to Italy for a signature and I thought, this is the worst life I could imagine for myself. And uh, when I came back, a friend of mine said... Uh, what are you doing, Hammond? And I said, well, I've just closed down. I'm closing down this business. I've had enough. I was with partners. Was, you know, We had all these fingers in different pies, and I was just cutting them off, as it were. And it was a hard decision, but I had to take it because I couldn't, I couldn't cope with, with that lifestyle, the never-ending lifestyle. Uh, and I thought, um, he said, come and be a builder with me. So I went, okay. So we did development. We were building... Uh, lots of things, and we had a team again here here in Brixton with lots of different people, uh, Polish and Bulgarians and um, uh, Italians and Spanish, but also Chinese, lots of Chinese people. And uh, obviously, I've grown up with Chinese people as well because that's part of Brixton. Mm-hmm. And my uh, in in when I was in industrial design, uh, a good friend of mine, uh, Casey Lowe, his. Um, his father owned Monkeys, which is a, a very big, famous restaurant in Chinatown, and we would eat there every Friday, and then we'd go to dim sum every Friday and all, every Sunday, and all, I think all this you're other the stuff. best-fed person I've ever interviewed. Well, <laughs> you, I think you can see that in my waistline. No. <laughs> <laughs> my butt's not so bad. If you want to have, I want to eat with you. <laughs> so, you know, we, uh, with my Chinese team, one of them kept on saying, "Let's open a dim sum restaurant," because my wife's a, a dim sum chef, and I was saying never should you open a restaurant and he would say why this is my i have family restaurateurs and every restaurateur will tell you as i tell you today look into my eyes never open a restaurant (laughs) never open a restaurant right if you want to experience opening a restaurant yes for five minutes i will take you um somewhere quiet and just beat the hell out of you (laughs) right physically harm you for five minutes and just imagine that every day for the rest of your life, working life, just getting beaten up. So, you know, it's the one thing. Did you hear me? Yeah, I heard. Did you understand? <laughs> You're not saying yes. I will not. I will not open the restaurant. But do not open the restaurant. Okay. So I told this to my so-called friend. <laughs> I said, No, I have learnt from people far cleverer than me that you should never open a restaurant because they're restaurateurs and they tell about the hell that it truly is. But for some reason, you know, that's what they do. They're still there. They can't get out of it. Because once you're in, you can't get out. And they say, don't open a restaurant. And I believe them. And he did this for about a year. You know, let's open a restaurant, a dim sum restaurant. And you gave him the same story each time. I'm going to beat you up. That, that's right. And, uh, <laughs> and, then and then one day... One day, he said to me, I tell you what. You... Um, you... How about this? You open... Well, we open a restaurant, but you just do the front of house. You do the cocktails and the design. And I'll do the rest. The kitchen, the service, all the things that, you know, 
you've been telling me not to do, you know, because he he's a restaurateur. He comes from a restaurant background. His wife's a dim sum chef. Mm-hmm. And I thought, you know what? There's nothing more in the world I'd love to do than do cocktails. <laughs> it's like, that, it is, it's one of my favourite things, isn't it? You're creative, it's very huh. fast. You know, you get to try all these alcohols. You get to learn a lot. There's a lot of history behind these drinks. And I, and I enjoyed that history. Um, and so we agreed to create a partnership and we span around, the world, span around London trying to find a venue until we found this one in Brixton. And it just resonated that, hey, hang on, it's in Brixton. It's on the front line. Um, it's a lovely space. Uh, it was in absolutely terrible condition. It was just, uh, it was, it was just horrible. <laughs> it was properly horrible. And it had been, been lots of things and it had been vacant for a couple of years uh, and really not looked after. And I thought, this is what we do. We build, we design It'll be amazing. We can do lots of research. We went off to China. All these kind of things, you know. Um, the excitement of a new project. And so we, I opened a restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> um, and Hopefully you don't feel like you're getting beaten up every single day. That hasn't stopped. You get used to it. Oh. <laughs> we humans can get used to any kind of abuse and think it's normal after a while. You're numb. Yes, yes, numb from the beating. <laughs> but let's talk about the making the cocktails, the positive part. So how did you go in? You had, I'm, I'm going to make cocktails. Well, um, I think, see, that's obviously where the, the love comes in as well. So with the cocktails, again, it was quite simple. Um, I took the stories out of China, the things that really intrigued me, and built a cocktail around it. So every cocktail that we did for ourselves has a story. And even the cocktails that we have elsewhere, um, say the Hanky Panky, for instance. Hanky Panky, brilliant drink, 1904, 1906. Ida Coleman, head bartender at the Savoy. So a female head bartender at the Savoy creates a drink for a lovey who comes in and says, make me a drink, Ida. And she makes this incredible naughty drink called the Hanky Panky, which um, actually has this... uh, really vicious Victorian dark flavor and very difficult to drink. And then we just, you know, with that kind of story, it's easy to adapt it to Brixton. We put raspberries in, made it even naughtier than, than Ida. I'm sure she'd be very proud of Ada Coleman. She'd be very proud of us, what we did with it. And it's a, it's a little story that any bartender could do. But what we did, or what I discovered, is that the, the stories of Royal China and the courtesans are really intriguing and really make you think so some of our cocktails have stories that would take half an hour to an hour to, to go through because they're really you know, pulling at the uh, ancient mythology and legends of these women. And uh, so to create a drink around that becomes really exciting because all of a sudden you're not just creating... Any, any person could put three... You know, the, the spirit, the sweet... Uh, as it were, and the bitter together to make a balanced cocktail. So they say, what's more intriguing is to create a drink that tells a story, that resonates somehow with, with what you've learnt about a person or about some mythology or about a feeling. That's much harder to achieve. So it's a real challenge. And that, that's where the cocktails, I feel, that we, we, um, we excel, is that our cocktails have this element of storytelling and therefore, hopefully, the client will be able to get a, a resonance with that and engage with the drink in a different way to somewhere else where it just looks pretty or tastes great or comes in a fabulous gra- glass. Th- this is more than that. 
and some of the our drinks touch on the mortality they touch on religious experience they touch on druggery or historical aspects of trade and things like that and and, and especially on the beauty and fragility of of uh, let's say the female experience and that's where i think we've we've excelled also using teas so chinese tea is still the most expensive uh, drink on earth uh, even more than fine wines for instance and and the fact that we understand how to use teas adds complexity to a lot of our drinks uh, again that i'm very proud of and i will stand behind uh, and and enjoy myself i still enjoy having these drinks 5 years on or 6 years on from creating them so should we go to the bar and you make me one and tell me the story we can yes i i would love that All right. uh, so let's start how could i have a cocktail of the week without one of hamant's stories i couldn't here's the tale of the courtesan if i were to come into the royal court of china as someone who needed a favor or maybe something quite important politically uh, for instance maybe i wanted to trade with a different land or there was taxation issues or an argument with a neighbor etc you know H- how would i resolve this uh, if i went to any court but especially the chinese court i wouldn't be able to just rock up to the emperor and say hey matey you know sort this out within 10 paces i'd be killed because these people were deities as it were um, and very very important with many assassination attempts so the first thing would I'd, I'd be the first one so the um, as anywhere you'd have to be formally introduced understand the network uh, and then the hierarchy and how how you could proceed through so i as someone who needed something maybe for my region my family something quite important would need to ingratiate myself with the court the only way of doing this really is is through a courtesan So there I would be coming to a courtesan bearing her gifts attempting to gain favor. Now some of these courtesans were so powerful they could click their fingers and allow me to do this. Yes, you can trade with India. Yes, your family is allowed allowed to do this. Um or yes, the court will provide the money for you to um make or have the caravan or, or make the ships to trade with whoever will allow you. Uh, or they would pave the way for this to happen and maybe act on your behalf to put this let's say finance structure or political structure together to allow you to do this so uh, to go to a courtesan bearing gifts and favors and recommendations and letters and silks maybe and and, and examples of your work etc was all part of part of that process to engage with another person the issue here was that courtesan was someone very clever very educated in this field from trained from birth to uh, essentially look after her own interests and those of the people she represented and to see what she could gain from this deal what was what's in it for them or the court or the emperor depending on on, on who she was working for so it may be that that process could last days weeks years even decades you know it could be a really fraught process um so all through that time as someone trying to gain that favor it wouldn't be simply that i'm there just handing over gifts i'm giving everything information intelligence um all that i can to to, to achieve what i needed to now in that process 
even though the courtesan would be there uh, feigning me with hospitality, etc. She's really toying with me, playing with me, finding out, testing what, what, what's really there, what's really the truth, what, what benefit was there. And therefore, I became, as it were, that bird in the cage. So many people considered that the courtesans were that. They were simply you know, sexual objects in the court. And yes, there were, there were some people who, who were there simply for the privilege um, of other people, men and women. Um, but when it came to that power struggle, the, the true basis of any court, um, then I would really have to uh, somehow win attention and win that person over. So it may take me, for instance, if you're the courtesan, it may be, take me, as I said, years to get, to get those things flowing, that conversation, that engagement. And one of the things that would happen, I would undoubtedly also fall in love with you. Because here I am meeting someone who is trained in the arts, not only of social engagement, but even in seduction, and would be able to read a person before they even knew what they're thinking, uh, understand them before they would uh, spout a word. Uh, so all that is, is uh, truly um, almost as a, a philosopher would, you know, really contemplate how things work. So... The problem is, here I am, you know, I need a favour, I'm falling in love, <laughs> I've, I've spent everything, I'm trying to win attention and make myself part of the court as well, and I need that, this person to engage me, so I'm using them as, as, a, as an entry point. Now, at one point, imagine after all this hard work and all this effort, that courtesan finally either does what I need that day, that everything's happened, or she kisses me. Whichever one comes first, you know, what would it be like? What do you think it'd be like? Well, I always thought that it's very automatic to, to think, oh, it'd be a lovely celebratory drink. So you'd have the, the expressive bubbles of a champagne or a Prosecco to show the excitement. And we're celebrating. Yes, I finally achieved it. So, yes, we created a drink that starts, as you can see, it starts with this uh, sparkling handmade Prosecco. But there's something else that when you finally get that kiss, I always imagine that you're tasting the flavor of those cherry red lips. Yeah, so you're there going, oh my gosh, I can taste it. So you're tasting the lips. And we put in a cherry liqueur and a cherry syrup. Liqueur is made by Briote, so another female maker in France who's created this amazing cherry liqueur. And the cherry syrup is made by Aude de Pont. Uh, who makes syrups uh, just outside of London. Amazing syrups. Um, really flavoursome, accurate, true depictions of the fruit in the syrup itself. And uh, I asked her to make the syrup for, for this drink. And she made a cherry sour syrup, you know, the sour cherry syrup. And uh, it's even gone uh, to win awards because it's just a phenomenal, phenomenal product. And what it does is what cherries do. Mainly when people think of cherries, they think, oh, cherries, like it's a lollipop. It's not. A cherry is quite a dark fruit. It's got a maturity about it, a complexity, and a darkness that's there. So here I am tasting these cherry lips, but not forgetting that darkness that this person has. And maybe I don't even appreciate it. All I'm thinking, oh, cherry, I finally got my kiss. But underneath is the real darkness that 
I, I love about cherries that sweet, dark flavour, like this woman who's toyed with me, played with me for all that time, manipulated me as if I'm just a toy. Um, and that hopefully will come through. And then we added, in, in this drink now, we have a, the Velvet Vintage Vodka by Gabriel Thought here in London, which is a, one of the finest vodkas I've ever tasted. Really silky, smooth, wonderful, floral almost uh, flavours. And then together, what you're experiencing... Uh, in the way we built the drink is first you have the dryness of the Prosecco and slowly, slowly gets sweeter and darker and stronger. And as you finish it, you should end up with this incredible sweetness to the drink where it started very dry. And hopefully that's the experience as, let, let's say, someone gaining favour from a courtesan would have, the way it starts and ends, and also finally getting that kiss. So that's all built into this drink. It's easy to make this as long as you have the correct ingredients. Make sure you have Blossoms Sour Cherry Syrup, Briote Creme de Cerise, Vintage Velvet Vodka, and Prosecco Argio Ruggeri. Mix together equal parts of the syrup, the creme de cerise, and the vodka, then slowly add the Prosecco. You should see a ruby red layer and a clear bubbly layer. There you have it. This and all the recipes you hear on the podcast can be found at alushlifemanual.com, where you'll also find all the ingredients in our shop. It was truly a learning experience chatting to Hamont, and let me say, the cocktails were as beautiful as the stories. Thanks to him, I know the true meaning of dim sum. Are you bored senseless when getting a haircut? The only thing to do is catch up on the latest issues of Hello and OK. Not that there's anything wrong with that. But wouldn't sipping cocktails while watching Stranger Things be better? Our next guest, Strew Olufsen, thought the same. And now his idea has come to life in London. Join us next time to see where you can get a cut and color and an old-fashioned. Until next time, bottoms up. Thanks for listening to the Lush Life Podcast, the sister of A Lush Life Manual. For more information and links to everything you heard, plus a bit more, please visit alushlifemanual.com. Always remember the wise words of Oscar Wilde, all things in moderation, including moderation. And always drink responsibly. Okay, I said that last part. Theme music is by Stephen Shapiro and used with permission. Lush Life is produced by Evo Terra, and I'm your hostess, Susan Schwartz. I'll see you at the bar.